Pray with me. Father God, be with us as we sit under the authority of your word and seek to understand and hear it rightly. Be with us even though we are sinful people. Be with me though I am a sinner as I proclaim it. Amen. So I was reading this article the other day about uh, this school district that offered, they started offering a prep course for standardized tests for colleges. If you don't have kids, you probably still know, but the SAT and ACT have this like crazy importance in who gets into college, and especially for students from harder backgrounds, it can be a big stumbling block. So anyway, they offered this to all their students, and then when they went back and examined the results, of course, some of the students didn't didn't come to the class at all, and a lot of that they realized was just because they didn't really think about it. Either they or their parents just never paid attention to the notes or emails that got sent out, and it didn't really sink in. Um, and then they had another group of students that came, but they, they only came for a few sessions, and they seemed engaged, but then they just fell off. And that was mostly just because they hadn't really planned for the class in the long term, hadn't structured their life in such a way to engage with it. But then they did have another group of students that stayed in the class. Some of those students, though, even then didn't engage. They, some of them were worn out from extracurricular activities, or they just spent the class looking at their smartphones. But some of them, some other students did um, stay through the class and engaged, and those students went on to college, and some even uh, went on to graduate studies, got PhDs, and, um, and yeah, succeeded in those ways. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, in a sense, about that being the sermon, but, but the reason that I wanted to start that way is because the text that we're about to read, and apologies to the liturgists, I didn't have them read it beforehand like we normally would, because again, I wanted you to just feel this text that we have for today in Matthew 8, or in Luke 8, is one of the most familiar parables of Jesus. If you've been around the church at all, you've probably heard it. And because of that, most of us don't feel puzzled by it. We feel very confident, in fact, that we know exactly what's going on in it. And that is definitely not the reaction of the first crowds. When they heard it, they didn't know what was happening. And so we can kind of look down on them and look down on the disciples. And that confidence, I think, is actually a big hindrance to us really understanding what Jesus is saying in this parable. So with that said, what I just told you is sort of my modernized attempt to riff on the parable of the sower, and to be clear, it's not actually an article I read. But let's now turn to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 4, and first we're just going to read the section where Jesus tells the parable. And I want you to try to get out of your head of having this all figured out and knowing everything that Jesus is saying, and just hear this the way the crowds would have heard it. So Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathered... And people from town after town came to him. He said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, 
let him hear. So again, try to feel how strange this is. This great crowd gathers, probably thousands of people gathering to hear what Jesus is going to teach them. And what Jesus is, he does is he gets up and he just tells this story. And notice, first of all, Jesus doesn't say what the story is about. In some of his parables, he'll say, like, the kingdom of God is like this, or some disciple will come to him and ask him a question about, like, forgiveness, and Jesus will tell this parable in response. So it has a clear topic, but here he doesn't say at all, like, here's what this story is about. And it's not really clear on the surface of it, especially if you don't get his explanation later, what any of this means. Think about, like, like seeds. Jesus doesn't say what the seeds are. I mean, are they, are they good deeds? Is it money? Is it maybe a picture of, like, Israel, the people of God? You wouldn't actually, listening to it, know, know what these things are supposed to represent. And even if you have some sense, some correct sense of what these things represent, this parable is also puzzling because it does not give a clear moral. We'll talk about this more later, but, I mean, it's a parable about soil, and it's told in this very matter-of-fact way. Jesus isn't telling a story about four types of people you should be like, um, because he's, he's talking about soil, and while, in a sense, you want to be the last type of soil, it's not really clear how soil can change. So do you see that, how this is actually maybe a little more confusing than we think? We might wonder why Jesus preaches like this, why he doesn't explain what he's saying. And he's actually about to give us that answer. But I think that answer is puzzling too. But let's listen to it in the next two verses. It says, When his disciples asked Jesus what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So Jesus here explains why he's preaching in parables. And so we're like, oh, of course, that makes sense. But does it? I mean, on one level, I mean, Jesus basically says, look, it's been granted to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but others, I'm speaking in parables so that they won't understand them. And so first, you might read that and say, but, but wait a minute, are you saying that the whole point of parables is to not let people understand? Like, that can seem challenging to us. And it gets even more puzzling when you realize that Jesus' whole thing, he's like, here's why I teach in parables, so that you guys will know these secrets and the other people won't. But the disciples don't understand the secrets either. The whole reason for this discussion is because they're not understanding what he's saying in this parable. So, so, so it's even more puzzling. And for the disciples, they're probably even more confused. And I don't think that entirely ends when we get to the explanation. If you keep reading in verse 11, Jesus then explains this parable. He says, The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. So now Jesus does tell us what the parable stands for. But again, still don't jump to your assumptions. 
Let's just hear what he says. He says, first of all, that the seed is the word of God. What does he mean by the word of God? Well, we immediately jump to thinking about the Bible, right? That this is about the Bible. But of course, that's not a thing for Jesus. I mean, you know, the, the whole New Testament, at least, has yet to be written while Jesus is ministering. Instead, in Luke especially, when Jesus talks about the word of God, what he seems to use that is in the same way he talks about the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom, which is something we've already seen pop up in Luke and will continue throughout Luke. And just to remind you, here's what that means. Here is, in Luke's mind, the gospel of the kingdom. It is that Jesus is the king, and he has arrived, and he's setting up his kingdom, and he's inviting anyone who will come to him into that kingdom. But his kingdom is not of this world, and the way into it is hard, and involves much suffering, and taking up your cross, and following him. That, over the course of Luke, is the gospel of the kingdom. Let me just say that again, because this is like the heart of Jesus' message in this gospel. It's that Jesus is the king, and his kingdom has arrived, and he's setting up this kingdom right now, and he's inviting anyone who would come to, in, to come into the kingdom, but that his kingdom is not of this world, and that entering it is hard and involves taking up our crosses and following Jesus. That is the word of God. That's the seed that's being scattered. And then Jesus says, look, this seed is given to all kinds of people, but there's four different ways in this story that people respond. First, there's those who really never believe or respond to that gospel call at all. Those people Jesus pictures as hard-hearted, and as a result, uh, the devil comes, it says, and takes away the word from their hearts. That's what the birds represent, is somehow Satan snatching away the good news of the kingdom. The second group that Jesus describes are those who are thrown on rocky soil, and he says that those are people who, while they hear and respond, in a sense, initially to the good news of the kingdom, they don't have any roots. And so when they face the trials of life, they just wither and disappear. The third group are those who, um, who, who sort of respond to the kingdom and believe. But there's all of these weeds of worry and wealth and worldly pleasure in their lives that, are, that, that, that grow up around the, the plant of the gospel. And so as a consequence, it's not able to grow and flourish and it's kind of choked out and it never bears fruit. And in the last group are those who hear and Jesus says that they hold fast in an honest and good heart to the word of God and they bear fruit with patience. Remember in the story, like a hundred times what is sown. So Jesus says that that's what the parable is about. And this is where, again, we hear all of that. And I want to push back, maybe, against the places our minds immediately go. Because at this point in the story, I think often we end up thinking about one of two things. And these are the only things we think about. One, some of us immediately want to jump to kind of the, the theological weeds, I guess you could say, <laughs> given the agricultural imagery, but these specific theological questions, especially about sort of who's saved. And I've heard a great deal of discussion by people about, you know, are the, is this group saved really or not saved? And, and how do we think about, is this about losing your salvation or are they not? And here's the thing, that is just a misunderstanding of how to read parables in general. Right? Jesus is not, in this parable, giving a lecture about theology. What he's doing is he's telling a story about farming 
to illustrate some points for his people. And in that story, right, the question that you're not supposed to probe is the eternal destinies of the plants. It's simply that you're supposed to say, here are four different ways that you will see people respond. And we all are supposed to look at it and be like, oh yeah, I've seen that. Which I think we have if you've been around people who have heard the gospel before. So don't get lost in those kind of theological questions. But then also, and this is I think by far the most common read of the parable, don't immediately jump to moralizing it. Which is to say, there's this way of reading the parable that just says, okay, here's what Jesus is trying to say. He's trying to say that you want to be in the fourth group, and so your job is to make sure that you cultivate your soil and, and work really hard and weed your heart and you know watch out for the devil, do all these things to keep you from being in the third groups and to put you into the fourth group. And the struggle I have with that is that that's not entirely wrong. Um, and we'll actually talk a little bit later about the way that that's sort of correct. But when that's where you immediately go with this parable, I think you actually miss the point of the parable. And you end up with this reading that doesn't actually work very well. Let me give you four reasons it doesn't work. One is because it doesn't really fit with the imagery of soil, as we've already said. Right? This isn't a parable of four farmers tending four different fields. This is a parable in which, if we have a place in the parable, it is just as dirt. And, um, and dirt doesn't change itself, right? <laughs> in addition, Jesus' explanation of the parables in verses 9 and 10 doesn't really make sense if that's the point of this parable. Why is Jesus... Um, Right. Why is Jesus' point there basically like, well, I'm just saying this because it's going to be hidden to them and it's going to be revealed to you if the point is that like they're supposed to change. That doesn't actually fit either. It also doesn't really fit with the description of the good soil. What makes the good soil good is not that it makes sure it isn't the other kinds of soil. What makes it good is simply that it holds fast to the word of God. And I don't think that moralizing works because it doesn't fit with the last three verses of this section which we haven't read. And now this is where I need to just note something else that many of you are probably aware of, but the paragraph markings and headings and verse numbers and chapter numbers in your Bible, they are not part of the original text of the Gospel of Luke. They're good and useful, right? I'm very grateful that we have them because it would be a lot harder to like tell people to look something up in the Bible if you didn't. But they can often mislead us and this is a good example of that. You'll notice between verses 15 and 16, your Bible almost certainly has a paragraph break and a new heading that says something like the parable of the lamp. But the problem is, if you look at the text, there's nothing that indicates that break in the text, right? It's just Jesus is talking and he continues talking. And you see that if you go back in Mark, there is a, a very brief break, but all the break is between these two parables, which are right next to each other, is it just says, and Jesus said to them, which seems to say he's just continuing to talk to his disciples. And in Matthew, he doesn't actually have the parable of the lampstand, but what, what we have in verse 18 here in Luke, he actually puts in the middle, in between the parable and the explanation. So all three of the Gospels that record this parable actually understand verses 16 through 18 as part of the same thought that Jesus is addressing in the parable of the sower. So let's read that. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar, or puts it under a bed, or puts it on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you fear, 
For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Now again, stop and don't make assumptions. In, in verse 16, Jesus talks about this lighting a lamp, putting it under a cover. And we all immediately again think we know what he's talking about there. That the point is that we're not supposed to hide the light of Jesus in us. That this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, kind of command of Christianity. And the interesting thing about that reading is that's not a wrong way to read that parable. And I know that because Luke actually has Jesus tell the exact same parable in Luke chapter 11. And in Luke 11, that's very much the point he's making. But I don't think it's the point he's making with this image here. Here's why. He says, nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. What is the hidden and secret thing in what Jesus has just said? Well, it's back in verse 10 in his explanation of the parable where Jesus talks about the secret of the kingdom of God. So, so the light is the kingdom of God, and it is right now, in a sense, secret and hidden, but Jesus is using the illustration here to say it's going to be revealed and to shine forth. Which is to say, Jesus is saying, nobody lights, lights a lamp and then just hides it under a jar, and that includes God. And then in verse 18, he makes his ultimate point which is that because of that, because of what he said in the parable of the sower, and because of the reality that the light of the kingdom will not be secret forever, what we're supposed to do is take care how we hear. That's the only command in this whole passage, that we should take care how we hear. Um, and then he talks about how one who is given, more, to one who is given, more will be given. To one who is not given, even what they have will be taken away. And that seems to, in many ways, be a summary of the a lot of the themes of the whole parable that was earlier and of Jesus' explanation of the parables. And again, one more time, just feel puzzled and confused by all of this, right? We, we're, we should ask, what is Jesus trying to say? Simply drawing immediately some moral seems to miss whatever it is that Jesus wants to communicate. So, that's a lot. We've just walked through the whole thing and I realize at this point that you might be kind of frustrated with me <laughs> because basically what, what I've been trying to do up to this point is mostly just confuse us. With all of that said, though, now let's try to step back in and say after having looked at the parable without making assumptions, what is Jesus trying to say? What is going on here? Well, let me suggest two places I want you to start. One is with a general observation, which is that many of Jesus' parables including the parables that surround this one in some of the other Gospels, many of Jesus' parables are primarily interested not in giving us a moral we're supposed to apply to our lives, but in giving us a picture of the kingdom of God. Many of Jesus' parables, their main goal is to give us a picture of, about some, some reality or realities of the kingdom of God. And then the second thing I want you to think about is the scene that we get set at the beginning of our passage. So imagine this. Here is Jesus, and his disciples are around him, and thousands of people are coming to hear him. And Jesus is looking out over this excited, buzzing crowd. And you can imagine his disciples also looking out over this excited, buzzing crowd. And his disciples probably 
think that they know what the future holds. They think that this is, you know, it's the beginning of it, baby, and we're going to be vindicated, and Jesus is going to be this celebrity, and we're going we're gonna to have recognition and influence and be these really important people. Jesus looks out at the crowd and knows what's actually coming. That the gospel will be proclaimed to them, the gospel of the kingdom, and that some of them will hear and receive it, but many of them will reject it. And ultimately, probably even some of those there may well have been participating in the crowds in Jerusalem that ultimately crucify him. So Jesus tells this story, both for the crowd and for the disciples, in order to help them understand what the kingdom of God is ultimately like. To understand what the kingdom of God and the message of the kingdom of God in particular is really like. So what is it like? What does Jesus want them to know? The first thing I think is that God's kingdom is effective. God's kingdom is effective. It is powerful to produce fruit. The seed is the word of God. And one of the questions that the disciples and really every Christian has to wrestle with is if that, that gospel of God, that gospel of the kingdom, that gospel of Jesus' work for us, what does it mean about that gospel that many people hear it and do not receive it and are not transformed by it? Does that mean there's some defect in the gospel that we have to fix? And Jesus tells this story in order to stress the fact that the responses people have to the gospel are not the way we measure its power, but rather they're because of the types of soil that exist in the world. Every seed has the potential to bear fruit. Any seed, right? When you look at it, it has the potential, if it's buried in the ground and you know, is watered and taken care of, it has the potential to grow up and bear fruit. It is not the case that there's some problem with the seeds that fall on the rocky soil or with the seeds that fall on the, the path. They are all effective to bear fruit. The problem is that the path is not receptive to receive it. And the reason Jesus, I think, makes that point is simply because he wants us to not become discouraged when we see those different responses to the gospel. One of the things that can happen to, like, teachers, right, is that teachers can fall into this trap where they start measuring their success as a teacher by their worst student. Now, of course, you as a teacher want to invest in the students that are struggling and in some ways even give them the most attention and care, but it's also true that some of your students will just struggle and that you can fall into this place where you look at that failure and you say, I am a failure. (laughs) I'm not effective as a teacher because this student is not receiving and hearing and growing from my teaching. When what you need to also look at is all the other students in the classroom, right? And the students that are being helped by your teaching and recognize the ways that you're helping them. And in the same way, the power of the gospel is not measured by its effectiveness in changing the disinterested or in changing the hypocritical who are compromised with riches or worldliness. The power of the gospel is meant to be measured in the way it changes those who embrace it. In addition, I think Jesus would also remind us in this first point that the gospel um, is effective in that when we sow it widely, it will find receptive soil. 
So it's not just saying that, well, you know, sometimes the soil is bad. It's also saying there is good soil in the world, and that is why we need to sow this powerful gospel widely, right? Not all of the seed falls on good soil, but a lot of it does. And so we can also fail to see fruit, um, not just because we, um, we have that wrong view, but because we fail to sow the seed widely. I have had conversations, people, where they'll say something like, man, like, the gospel just doesn't work, right? You know, it doesn't work to share the gospel with people. And over the course of the conversation, what emerges is that what they really mean is, I tried it once, right? I tried to tell somebody about Jesus once, and nothing happened, and therefore, the gospel doesn't work. If I can just... This is... This is not probably the theologically precise way to interpret the story, but at a very crude, basic level, the story Jesus tells us about the seed of the gospel of the kingdom tells us that we should expect it to have like a 25% success rate, right? There's four types of soil, and only one of them receives the gospel and sees growth. And I don't say that because that's sort of like the literal truth, but I'm saying like, we should kind of have something more like that expectation as we move into the world with the good news of Jesus, or as we seek to love people, or as we seek to help people, right? I mean, it is so easy when you're, like, ministering to the poor to, to, to say, like, well, look, like, some of these people aren't being helped. And, and I get that, and it's not that you don't count that at all, but again, you want to say, are, like, are some of them? You know, if a quarter of them are being helped and lifted out of poverty, then that's, like, remarkably better than what you're doing without it. In our endeavors in ministry in general, what we need to recognize is that it's not measured by having like a 90% success rate. It's measured by whether those people that the gospel does reach, those people that, that, that are receptive soil to it, whether they're fruitful or not. Because the point, of course, is that even if only a quarter of the soil receives the seed, and again, I know that's not technically the way the parable works, but even if that was the case, it's producing a hundred times the fruit. All of which is to say, Jesus wants us to recognize that even though the gospel of the kingdom will not change everyone, that does not mean that it is not powerful and effective. It is. The second thing I think Jesus wants us to see is that the kingdom is not just effective, but in this story it's also progressive. It is progressive, meaning that it grows over time. You don't measure the power of the gospel or the effectiveness of the gospel by what it does just after you plant it, but by how much fruit it bears when the harvest arrives, just like if you were sowing seeds in the field. Many of Jesus' parables of the kingdom are really riffs on this theme, including this one, that the kingdom of God grows. It starts off small, maybe even invisible, but it grows into something fruitful and mighty. And that is just true of the gospel. It's true of our world. I mean, the last 2,000 years are a story of the gospel of the kingdom progressively going to the nations more and more. I mean, yes, it's not a simplistic upward line. It, you know, it's kind of more like the stock market. And it's not something that you can... Um, there, there, there are areas where the gospel struggles, the kingdom struggles, and then it kind of springs up in other areas. But, I mean, the simple fact is like, in the year 500 right, 500 years after Jesus, something like 4% of the world's population would have claimed the name of Christ. In I don't know, 1800, 
About 20% of the world's population would have claimed the name of Christ. Today, 33% would. And again, yes, it's not simplistically just upward all the time. And I think we struggle with that truth because we live in a place where, um, where the gospel is really experiencing some challenges. A lot of that has to do with the compromises the church and Christianity made with the surrounding world. But even there, I mean, look, I just, I point this out several times a year because it's just so important to our perspective on what the church is like. But I mean, less than 10% of the Christians in the world live in the United States, right? I mean, two-thirds of them live outside of what we would think of as the Western world. I mean, there's two and a half times as many Christians this Sunday in Africa as there are in the United States of America. Now, we have a lot more money, which means that there are certain gifts that we ought to steward wisely, but we are not the, you know, the, the mainstream of Christianity in the world. And that should be a source of hope for us, recognizing that God is still at work, the gospel is still growing in the world. That's true of the world. But it's also true personally. And that's what I think Jesus really wants us to hear. The gospel radically changes people, but it changes them over the course of their lives. What we want is immediate results, or at least very, very quick results. We, we think, man, this person, I've been kind of engaged spiritually with them for three months. Like, they should have fixed these issues they have. But what Jesus would remind us of is that the fourth soil, like think about what actually happens there. The, the sower goes and he sows the seed in that soil. And he gets up the next day and he looks out and there's no growth. And he looks out a week later and he still doesn't see anything, right? It doesn't look at that point still any different than any of the other soil. And then, you know, a few weeks or a month later, you're starting to see these little green shoots grow up. But that's still all there is. It's not that impressive. And it's only at the end when the harvest comes that you see these fruitful, heavy fields bearing a hundred times what was sown. That is the reality of the gospel of the kingdom and how it works in our hearts. And that means that we need patience. That's actually Jesus's um, point about the good soil here in Luke. It's that it holds fast to the word and bears fruit with patience. So what does that mean for us practically? It means first that we need to make choices as Christians about our lives and about how we minister to others that take the kind of long-term good rather than short-term results into view. Christianity is always about the long game. In terms of discipleship, in terms of um, discipling other people, in terms of things like parenting, or ministry as the church, Jesus is always playing with the whole arc of history and the whole of our lives in view. And that should be our attitude as well. Because if we chase after quick fixes, frankly, it's oftentimes the rocky soil that we will produce. Because there the plants do spring up quickly, but they have no roots and wither away. Particularly, that means that we need to be patient with other people. It doesn't mean that we never call people to change or grow, but it means that as they struggle to do so, as they fall on their face over and over, that we don't judge them or reject them, but we patiently walk with them. And it means that we need to be patient with ourselves, that we in many ways are in the same situation as they are, that we will often struggle and it is easy to become discouraged, but we need to continue to come to Christ, continue to seek to develop the habits that produce growth and turn from sin, and over the course of our lives, we will see fruit begin to be born.
So the kingdom is effective and progressive. And then Jesus also wants us to see that the kingdom is opposed, that it faces opposition. Each of the first three types of soil in some way involves opposition. It's not just that like the rain doesn't fall on them. In the first case, it is Satan comes and snatches the word away. In the second case, while the problem with the plants is that they have no roots, it is the the sun that scorches them, the trials of life that scorch them and cause them to wither. And in the third case, it is worldly worry and worldly wealth and um, worldly comfort that keep them from growing up and bearing fruit, cause them to be these stunted things. Again, this is not a moral fable, but this is the point where we should take to heart the kind of moral that we are called to, which is take care then how you hear. Which is to say that we need, as we seek to be the good soil, to be mindful of the opposition that we face and to take it to heart and to do the things that we can to not be that kind of soil. And again, this is where I said there is an element of truth to it, right? To that that moralizing. It's just that we want to do it within the context of everything we've just said about the, the power of the seed of God and about the, the progressive growing of the kingdom. But within that context, we do need to take care of how we hear. For example, we need to be asking whether we have deep roots. That means in terms of our understanding of Christianity, in terms of our practices of Christianity and the habits that we formed, in terms of our commitment to a community and place, have we sunk our roots down deep into Jesus and the resources he provides? It means that we also should be mindful of those those weeds, especially in our world. So many Christians, I think, are stunted in their growth because of the ways that they've tried to compromise Christianity with wealth and worldly comfort and worldly anxieties. The point, of course, of that image of weeds is this. It's not that the weeds kind of come in and like, I, I, I don't know, when, when I, we talk about weeds choking plants, like as a kid, I think I used to picture like them wrapping around the plant or something. That's not the point. It's simply this. It's simply to recognize that weeds keep plants from growing because the soil has a limited amount of resources, a limited amount of water and nutrients. And the more of those that are sucked up by the weeds, the less there are for the plant. And that spiritually our lives work the same way. That's what the the pleasures and wealths and anxieties of this world do. They take up our resources. They take up our time. They take up our money. They take up our energy. They take up our attention. They take up space in our hearts. And the more of that that we give to those things, the less of those resources we have for following Jesus. So we should take care how we hear. We should recognize those dangers and the opposition that the kingdom faces And we should seek to cultivate hearts that are receptive to the gospel. So that's three things. And then one last thing that Jesus would remind us of, which is that God's kingdom will shine. The harvest will come and it will be fruitful and bountiful. That is the point of that little uh, story about the lamp in this story, right? That, That it is that God, well, right now, in a sense, the kingdom is hidden, God didn't light the lamp of Jesus so that it will stay hidden forever. The sower doesn't sow the seed expecting it to always be hidden in the ground. He does it in anticipation of the harvest. And the harvest will come. The good soil will bear fruit. And it is that hope that lets us live into the other callings of the parable. It is that hope that is the certainty that God's kingdom is effective 
that we will come glory when Jesus returns and we see the millions and billions from every tribe and tongue and nation that he has redeemed by his blood joining together in praise to him, we will have no question about whether the gospel is powerful or not. The fact that God's kingdom will shine and triumph is the thing that sustains us through the progressive growth. Because even as we see it as painful and little by little in the present, we anticipate that image of glory of what we will become, what God is making us into, and that is the thing that helps us have peace in the present, even when we struggle to see it. And that is what sustains us when God's kingdom is opposed, knowing that even though Satan and the world will seek to stop the seed from bearing fruit, they will be unable to ultimately defeat it. They can't actually ultimately stop it. That the harvest will come, And it will be rich. So let us hold fast to the seed of the kingdom in our hearts. And let's seek to spread it to the world. To hear what Jesus is telling us. Because his kingdom and his power and glory are forever. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks that you are the great sower who has sown the seed of your gospel in the world. You call us to sow it to those we meet to, but you are the one ultimately who has cast the the gospel of the kingdom into the world, that you have proclaimed it before the nations, Lord, that you are at work making it effective, that you are growing us up into Christ's likeness, that you are working a harvest. Father, I give you thanks for all that you are doing, and I pray that you would simply help us to be people who live like that is true. Help us to be people of hopeful expectation, knowing that you will accomplish what you have set out to do. Help us to be people who are patient with ourselves and with others as the growth of your kingdom takes time. Help us to be people who are diligent, who persevere in in holding fast to your word and in growing up in it. Help us to be people who stand against the opposition of the world. And help us to be people ultimately who are fruitful, who in our lives, in our obedience, in our acts of love and service, in our proclamation of the gospel, in our building up of your church, that we would be people who see that hundredfold fruit as we seek to minister in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.